It could be someone you know. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. The Bronx has the highest rate of deaths from opiate overdoses in New York City. In fact, if the South Bronx was a state, it would have the second highest fatal overdose rate in the country after West Virginia. With us today to discuss the problems of opiate addiction is Dr. Jenna Butner, an addiction medicine specialist at SBH Health System. Welcome, Dr. Butner. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, To get started, um, I guess it's fair to say that people become addicted to opiates in many different ways, and they come in all different colors, ethnicities, and backgrounds, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, Addiction in general, whether opioid, alcohol, cocaine, uh, doesn't discriminate based on uh, ethnicity, socioeconomic background. Uh, We see addiction is basically pervasive throughout all different types of people and, and different backgrounds. Are are prescription opiate overdoses common here in the Bronx? Yeah, so uh, prescription opioids are um, not as commonly used here in the Bronx. Uh, In general, so the rate of of, uh, addiction with prescription opioids, according to the Center for Disease Control, is actually only 1%. Um, Prescription opioids in general have a much higher street value and we are not seeing them as commonly used here in the Bronx uh, due to socioeconomic uh, reasons. Uh, that being said, they still are being used throughout the country and can be a conduit to either heroin use or whatnot. With prescription opioids, we mostly um, worry about diversion. Uh, that's a very, very big problem, uh, not only in the Bronx, but throughout the country. What, what do you mean by diversion? Sure. So diversion is essentially um, having the prescription and either selling it or giving it to a family member or friend. Most people who do start using prescription opioids are uh, basically the medications are diverted from somebody else. Um, We see that in the literature. I had spoken to your colleague, uh, Dr. Samuels, about the problem with painkillers. And the fact that he sees many patients who come in, whether it's for cancer-related or uh, surgical-related incidents, and they very easily get painkillers that they can easily become addicted to. Yeah, um, you know, there's a big misconception with getting a prescription for a prescription opioid and developing an addiction. So just to be very clear, there's a difference between addiction and there's a difference between a physiologic dependence. So uh, just to uh, expound on that. So if somebody has prescribed an opioid, their body may uh, develop like a tolerance to that. And that does not equate to developing an addiction to it. So a lot of times we hear from patients, there's a fear of if they are prescribed an opioid of them getting, quote, addicted. Um, addiction is actually a diagnosis that there's certain criteria that do need to be met. Um, and it is a, a, a diag- the diagnosis is that it is a chronic uh, disease of the brain. And in order to make a diagnosis, it has to actually be present for over one year. So there's a lot of elements behind that actual diagnosis 
as opposed to just your body developing uh, a, a dependence, if you will. Right, right. Now, I, I've read that the latest drug on the scene is fentanyl mixed with cocaine. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're seeing here? Yeah. So uh, there's essentially, thank you for bringing this up. It's a very important uh, concept here in regard to discussing opioids. So there are two kinds of fentanyl. There's fentanyl that is prescribed for cancer pain and chronic non-cancer pain. These are prescribed from medical providers in a monitored setting. The other source of fentanyl that we're now seeing flooding essentially the market, if you will, uh, is coming in from, from Mexico and from China. These are synthetic opioids, and it's important to know fentanyl is almost 100 times stronger, more potent than morphine. So even just one use of it can lead to fatal overdose. And like you said, the problem is that people are not just buying fentanyl illicitly. What's happening is that fentanyl is being, we say, laced, so mixed in with really any drug. So whether it's heroin, cocaine, we're even seeing it uh, pop up, if you will, in urine drug screens for people who smoke marijuana. So it's being laced in so many different illicit drugs, and this is the kind of culprit behind a lot of the overdoses that we're seeing. I, to help combat the problem of addiction in the Bronx, I know city officials distributed 15,000 naloxone kits throughout the Bronx by the end of last year. And while I know naloxone saves lives, is that getting to the heart of the addiction problem here in the Bronx? That's a great question. So naloxone is a really uh, very important medication which essentially blocks opioid uh, overdoses. Uh, the prop, there's a couple of different issues here. Number one, to address your question, naloxone is not a treatment for opioid addiction. Um, it's a form of treatment that we say is uh, uh, called harm reduction. And harm reduction is basically meeting the patient where they're at. So if somebody is continuing to use any substance, um, in this case, particularly heroin, um, naloxone is basically a tool that we can give to them, whether in the form of a free kit or a prescription, uh, that'll help prevent death, essentially. So we're meeting the patient you know, where they're at. Uh, naloxone is really at the severe end of the spectrum as far as just preventing this mortality. Um, but it, it is a very, very important um, tool, if you will, uh, that anybody can use. I, in general, actually like to offer a prescription of Narcan to many of my patients, regardless if they have a substance use disorder, because really, in fact, a lot of people, most people, if you ask them, either know somebody or they see it, you know, whether they're on the subway or maybe walking down the street. And to have that as a tool in case, you know, in case of emergency is so important. Um, and I just want to add to that. Uh, it's a comment again on the fentanyl. The problem here now with naloxone is that the heroin being used is so, so, so strong that one dose of Narcan, of naloxone, is not touching the patient. So the problem is, is that a patient is requiring many, many, many doses just to prevent overdose. So this is kind of the gray area where we're really seeing so many overdoses. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. How does an individual end up as your patient? Is it after they overdose or are arrested or someone intervenes and realizes they have a problem or is it all the above 
Yeah, you know, it's all of the above. Um, one of the problems with, uh, well, it's not a problem with uh, addiction treatment, is that only one in 10 people actually seek out treatment. So we're missing 90% of people. And the people who actually do present for treatment are usually on the severe end of the spectrum where they've had that incident, whether that uh, overdose, whether that arrest, uh, whether that anything that you just mentioned. Uh, so the people that were either the people who are at high risk of developing addiction or who already have an addiction, maybe on a milder spectrum, um, they're really not presenting to us. So we're really missing uh, a large percentage of the population. Uh, but that being said, you know, addiction treatment, as with any treatment, I always say, you know, my rule of thumb is that a patient for substance use treatment needs to meet you halfway. Um, I can, you know, we can go 99%, but if that patient is not motivated or, you know, doesn't recognize that, you know, they have a chronic disease, um, it's really difficult to make any strides with that. Okay, so let's talk now about the treatment. Now, I know from a medical perspective, you offer both methadone and suboxone. So why don't we talk about the differences between the two of them? Okay. Um, that is a very complex question, but I'm happy to, to try to tackle that. Um, so so we're also, so we're, just to be clear, we're talking specifically about opioid use disorder. Right, right. Okay? So there are three uh, approved medications for opioid use, and those are one methadone, to Suboxone, which is the brand name, I just want to be clear, the actual medication is called buprenorphine, uh, but for our purposes, we'll just stick with Suboxone. And the third treatment is Naltrexone, uh, which is an opioid blocker, and that can be actually given in the form of an injection. So just to kind of parse out the difference between the three. So methadone is a very... Um, uh, Patients who go onto a methadone program can be very successful. What it is is it's a full opioid um, medication, if you will, agonist, if you will. And the way it works is that a patient gets um, titrated or optimized to a dose where they're able to not have craving and to basically, you know, get up and go about their day. Uh, the difference uh, with methadone is that it's, it's federally regulated and it cannot be prescribed from a, a medical provider's office for the indication of opioid use disorder. So it must be given at a dispensary, um, which are you know heavily monitored. They're located throughout the country. Um, and then at that methadone program, it provides a little bit more uh, guidance and oversight. So patients um, in most programs, they have to attend uh, meetings, a certain amount of group meetings per week or per month. Uh, they have to meet with a caseworker, um, maybe a social worker. So it's a more multidisciplinary approach and there's much more accountability. Uh, the second medication, Suboxone, buprenorphine, uh, it works as a opioid uh, agonist like methadone. And it also is a antagonist like naltrexone, which we'll talk about. So uh, buprenorphine is also a very great medication. And that can be prescribed by a medical provider in an office-based setting. And it can also be uh, prescribed in a kind of like a methadone dispensary type setting. Um, the difference with this, well, actually, you know, it, it does function in, in a similar way to methadone in that the goal is to decrease craving to enable somebody to function. 
And what it does though is, is that it really blocks those opioid receptors. And so if a person uses heroin, any opioid while taking this medication, the effect is blocked. So essentially the person doesn't feel the effect of any of these opioids while taking Suboxone. So it's a really, um, it's a really uh, great medication uh, for preventing um, uh, opioid use. Um, and then that being said, you know, if, if it is prescribed in an office-based setting, uh, there is a little bit more independence for the patient in the sense um, they don't have to come daily for, for dosing. There may be, you know, depending on the provider, they would come weekly or every two weeks. So you so, give them like a week or a two-week or a monthly supply. Yeah, so treatment contracts are, you know, agreements are in place. And then according to the provider, whatever, you know, program they have set up, and, you know, a lot of patients uh, who are maybe full-time employed or have difficulty getting to a clinic or maybe hadn't been using so much or for so long a time, um, this might be more appropriate for them. But that being said, methadone is, would be also a great option. But there's a trust involved with Suboxone, isn't yes. there? Yeah, there is a mutual, a mutual type of trust. Um, as with methadone as well, people who are in programs, they can uh, get take-home bottles and whatnot. So it's a similar concept. Um, and then the third medication, just to touch on, uh, naltrexone, uh, that is a medication. It can be given um, in the form of a pill, or most commonly it's given in an injectable form that's given once a month. Uh, the goal at that is to basically block those opioid receptors. Uh, so if you use while, while getting this medication, nothing will be felt. Um, and, you know, it's used for opioid use. It's also given for alcohol use disorders and other uh, illicit uh, drugs, you know, off-label, we would say. Um, so it is another treatment option, um, not one that I particularly, you know, use for patients with opioid use, but it is an option. We see it a lot used in the um, incarcerated population, also in the adolescent population. So there are certain groups that it's, you know, used a little bit more. Um, more so. Is the, is the medication forever or do you wean them over time? That's a great question and that's really the golden question with substance use treatment. Um, I, one of my mentors, you know, we all kind of struggle with this question and really my answer that I give my patients is um, for however long you need to be taking this medication. You know, um, for somebody, for example, with diabetes, um, I can't tell them how long they'll need insulin. It depends on so many factors, how they're responding to treatment, their diet, et cetera. So it's the same concept with substance use. Um, it also depends on the, you know, the patient's circumstances change over time, um, you know, different goals and whatnot. Um, I always, my approach is if it's not broken, don't fix it. You know, treatment for substance use disorder is medication and also you know, the, the psychosocial part, the counseling or group therapy. Okay, so that's part of the treatment also. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, studies show that um, specifically with Suboxone that, you know, addition of counseling and whatnot doesn't actually provide better outcome. Um, but that being said, you know, a lot of uh, patients with substance use disorders, they have, a, there's a large percentage with past trauma and, you know, abuse and co-occurring mental health disorders and, um, it's so important to incorporate that as part of the treatment, and that can be in the form of individual therapy, group therapy, uh, going to a 12-step program, AA, um, NA, Narcotics Anonymous. So there are so many tools, 
and really, you know, some patients don't really respond to that. They're not, it just doesn't work for them and that's okay. Um, I always tell them to try it and, you know, again, revisit it if circumstances change and, you know, as many tools that we can use are, you know, as with anything, it is better. It's a tough business. What constitutes a victory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a victory, you know, we can define victory, of course, is is really abstinence. And um, not only abstinence, actually, let me take that back. So successful treatment in substance use would be either a reduction in the amount of use or abstinence, which is essentially not using the drug, um, and really measuring it in terms of life outcomes. So whether that is in the form of obtaining a job, having healthy relationships with family members and coworkers and friends, um, addressing other medical psychiatric uh, conditions. Um, you know, some patients are not able to achieve that abstinence. And again, it's, it's really meeting them where they're at. Um, so in the form of either harm reduction or, or whatnot, that for me, that's a successful outcome as well. Um, so it's really, and it, it really is patient and provider specific. Um, there's no defined um, uh, victory, if you will. Um, it's really what the goals of treatment are between the patient and the provider. But it is, it is, you know, it's an ongoing discussion every time they come. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Jenna Butner, uh, for joining us in SBH Bronx Health Talk today. Again, for more information on addiction medicine or other services available at SBH Health System, visit www.sbhny.org. And uh, thank you for joining us. Until next time. Thank you so much.